You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. I have the blessing of being married to Erica for the last 31 years. We met while we were campus students in the Boston Campus Ministry, and we have been fully in love with each other ever since. Uh, We have three beautiful daughters, Miyoko, Manami, and Mimi. Miyoko and Manami are both married. Miyoko is married to Jason Williams, and Manami is married to Ross Lippincott. And Mimi is now a fresh, oh, actually, she's going into her sophomore year at Tufts University in Boston. Our granddaughter was born in February to Manami and Ross, and our grandson was born uh, in March to uh, Jason and Miyoko. So we are just thrilled right now to be in the grandparent stage. Uh, God has blessed us in an amazing way. I was uh, at Harvard, and I was thinking about God. I started to go to the local church there. And it just so happened that someone knocked on the door of one of my friends where I was, I was talking and hanging out and invited all of us to Bible study. I uh, started studying the Bible, but uh, that particular semester wasn't my time. I wasn't ready. Went home for the summer, thought about it a lot, prayed about it a lot, came back in the fall, looked up the church again, and in my sophomore year at Harvard, I was baptized and became a Christian. Well, my senior year, I was really, really struggling over what I should do with my life. One of my classmates had decided to go into full-time ministry, and I hadn't yet made that decision, but once he made that decision, it made me think, I need to be totally open to whatever God wants me to do. Um, Went into the ministry. I was in Boston for a little while. At that time, we were sending mission teams all over the world, and the elders sat down with me and asked me if I would lead the mission team to Paris, France. And so Eric and I went to France first. After that, we went to San Francisco for about a year. And then we went on to Tokyo, where we were for 15 years. Uh, Erica came down with a condition that's congenital. It's called lupus. And it had affected her mother quite severely. And there was a couple of years when she was actually in bed the entire time. She went into uh, recovery, remission after that. And we were very, very thankful for that. And that's when our third daughter was born. Um, And then we had a relapse. And so it was time for us to come back to the United States, uh, come out of the ministry, and God put us in Denver, Colorado. Uh, It was amazing. When uh, I was first introduced to the congregation as a new member, uh, one of the elders, Chris Jacobs, said, you know, you've known Frank as an evangelist and as a missionary, but now you're going to get to know him as a bro. I had to start a career, a secular career, outside of the ministry, and that was uh, quite challenging. And eventually I was asked to uh, join the company that a friend of mine had started. It's called Pactimo. And I've been the CEO and uh, co-owner of that company for the last 12 years now. And we were certainly very, very honored when in 2008 the leadership of the church in Denver asked us if we would be willing, asked me if I would be willing to be appointed as an elder. And uh, it was one of the highlights of my life uh, to become a shepherd and an elder for the Denver church. And that's been a great experience for us. Good morning, church. Welcome to our Sunday celebration party. It truly has been an amazing time together. Now, I was going to start out today by saying that I am so fired up to be here and that every morning for the last several months, I was looking forward to being here. But last night, Doug Arthur outed me, (laughs) along with the other main speakers. And I want to say right now in front of all of you that actually it was Joyce that outed Doug to me. We were at the rehearsal and we were all nervous and Joy said, you wouldn't believe how anxious Doug is. He's scared to death. 
So anyways, uh, that's, that's a little bit about how we've come into this conference. Now, it didn't help that yesterday I woke up and I realized that I was losing my voice. I was getting a cold. And so I received some very important advice from my family. Don't talk. So all day yesterday, I was around Erica and the daughters, Miyoko, Manami, Mimi, and every time I started opening my mouth, it's like, Papa, don't talk. I, I think that they enjoyed saying that a little bit too much. I'm not really sure why, but uh, anyways, I think it worked because today I'm able to be with you, and prayerfully, God's going to use me to be able to convey a message that he has on his heart to all of us as his church. Amen? I did want to start out by saying I'm thankful to my family right here sitting in the front row, uh, my wife Erica and all my daughters and my new sons. I'm so thankful to the Lippincott family, the Williams family for sharing their special sons with us. And we do have two new grandbabies that were born this last spring and so we're very, very excited about all of that. So I'm thankful for all the prayers, the encouragement, and I want you to know that today I'm no longer nervous about the delivery. I'm no longer nervous about, you know, how I'm going to say things because I feel so convinced that God has a message to share with us, and that is what's most important. Amen? Amen. So I want to start with a very simple question. The question I want to start with today is this. Do you believe? Do you believe that we will reach the world for Jesus Christ? February 1981, I was sitting on an old yellow school bus. I was about a three and a half month old Christian, and I was with these guys, affectionately known as the Harvard Bros. We were surrounded by a bunch of other Boston campus ministry disciples, and we were on our way to Chicago, Illinois for the Midwest Evangelism Seminar. Now, we were all young Christians. We had never been to a seminar like this before, that that weekend was going to change our lives. The theme that weekend was world missions. I will never forget. One of the keynote speeches delivered by a gentleman, an older gentleman named Richard Rogers from the traditional churches of Christ. I don't remember the title of the message, but what he said has been emblazoned on my heart ever since. He said, untold millions are dying untold. I remember sitting on that bus next to the window watching the frozen landscape go by in the middle of the night thinking my whole life has been changed. Everything has been turned upside down. There could no longer be for me a Christianity that didn't embrace and wasn't fully committed to reaching the world for Jesus Christ. I went to the back of the bus, I fellowshiped with the other brothers and somewhere in the middle of the night It was probably in Ohio or western Pennsylvania. The school bus stopped at a gas station. And we piled out of the bus. And me and the other Harvard guys, we got in back of the gas station on our knees in the snow. And we prayed to God and we said, God, use us in any way to reach the world for Christ. God answered that prayer. And in the decades that follows, he took us from the back of that gas station literally all over the world. We went to India, Europe, Canada, Asia, the Middle East. We preached that dream. We lived that dream. 
We believed that dream. In 1986, we were asked, Eric and myself, to lead the mission team to Paris, France. Now, why Paris, France, you may ask? Well, isn't it obvious? I mean, I look so French, right? <laughs> Actually, Erica spoke fluent French, and because I was married to her, I got to go along with her. Well, we went to Paris, and I'll never forget standing on top of the Eiffel Tower, praying over the city of 10 million people, begging God to help us so that every man and woman living in that city would know the gospel of Jesus Christ. I will also never forget my first experience is butchering a foreign language. After several months, we began to preach in French. There was one Sunday morning a particularly kind of intense sermon. And we had a tradition of taking up prayer request cards. And so I, I got up and I said, I want everyone here to open your hearts and put your needs on the prayer request cards. Don't hold back. Put your needs, all your needs on the prayer request cards and hand them in to the middle aisle. But what I actually said in French was, I want everybody here to open your hearts and I want you to put your poop. Don't hold back. All your poop on those prayer request cards and hand them into the middle aisle. Now, I don't know if it was because of that announcement, but it was soon afterwards that Eric and I were asked to go to another country. So in 1988, we found ourselves leading the Tokyo Japan mission team. Now, a couple of years before we went, the Wall Street Journal had called Japan the Mount Everest of mission work. And in the article, it said, the day of the missionary is over. And you know how when you're young and fired up, those kind of things just get you more excited. So we moved to Japan with our mission team. And we found that less than 1% of the Japanese population was Christian of any kind any kind at all. We studied the Bible with thousands of Japanese people, most of them who have never seen a Bible, touched a Bible, and certainly never read a Bible in their entire lives. And God blessed it, and that congregation grew to be one of the largest Christian congregations of any kind in the country of Japan. But at that time, I continued my distortion of foreign languages. I remember my first Japanese sermon. I, was been there, I had been there for about a year, studied Japanese very, very diligently, and it was time. And so I planned out my sermon, and I got up, and I'd memorized everything that I possibly could. And it was a 30-minute sermon, and for the first 27 minutes, it went awesome. And I was planning a crescendo to the epic finish out of Isaiah 40, where I was going to read and you shall rise up on wings like eagles. And what I said was, you shall rise up on wings like cows. <laughs> now the Japanese are very polite people. I got no response from the audience at that point. It was only several months later when I was preaching at a midweek devotional to our church and I was trying to tell them to look around and see that the world is lost. 
Ushinawareteru is the word in Japanese. But instead I said, Ushiniwareteru. And that means we need to look around and see that the world is being chased by cows. I'm still waiting for my commission checks from Chick-fil-A. Nineteen ninety-two. The Lord took a mission team to Cambodia. I had the privilege of leading that mission team. Cambodia had been through two decades of civil war resulting in genocide and unspeakable horrors. There were fields of skulls and skeletons in that country that became known as the killing fields. We put together a team of ten disciples, only one of whom could speak Cambodian. And his Cambodian was only at a middle school level. In fact, he didn't even know how to say the word church in Cambodian when we got there. Hard to invite people that way. But God blessed it. Because at our very first service, we had 1,200 people in attendance. We baptized 70 people that first year. And today in Cambodia, we have five thriving congregations. We have built schools. And today we have built, through Hope Worldwide's effort, a medical system that has treated almost 2 million people since 1996. In 1994, I had the blessing of going with the mission team to Ho Chi Minh City or Saigon, Vietnam. Now, this was before political relations had been normalized between the United States and Vietnam. That meant that this was an underground church in a heavily communist country. It took courage to go. Our early disciples, they had their meetings raided by the police. They were interrogated at the local police station. But they persevered and today we have three growing, strong, vibrant churches in Vietnam and our disciples are partnering with the local police to build homes for the poor in their communities. Amen? In 2000, the amazing Metro Manila Christian Church hosted the Asian Christian Jubilee. Now, the Manila Church had an amazing vision. They said, we're going to invite our entire city to our Sunday service. And they did it. Radio, TV, house to house, neighborhood by neighborhood. And I'll never forget standing on the stage that Sunday and looking out at Lynetta Grandstand at a crowd estimated to be over 100,000 people. It was amazing and a miracle of God. You know, we had a mantra back then. Our mantra was this, evangelize the world in one generation. Maybe that sounds familiar. Evangelize the world in one generation. We had a world conference leadership, I mean, world leadership conference around that theme, one generation. This mission defined our thinking. It shaped our strategy. It became who we are. Now, maybe like many of you, I discovered that life, doesn't have a, that life doesn't work out the way that you planned it. You know what I'm talking about. As I shared, Erica has a condition named lupus. She was bedridden for almost two years at one point while we were living in Tokyo. She went into remission. We're so thankful for those years. Around the year 2000, she had a relapse. It began to reoccur. A year or two later, we realized that our oldest daughter, Miyoko, had the same genetic marker for the same condition. And we realized that it was time to come home. So we moved back to the United States, and as God's Spirit would have it, He put us in Denver, Colorado, 
where we found an amazing family who put their arms around us in a way that we will always be eternally thankful for. But I was no longer a missionary. I was no longer a full-time minister. You know, we went through some tough times, some soul-searching times. I remember waking up at two in the morning and worrying and wondering, how am I going to pay the bills this month? I remember driving down the street, thinking, feeling like a failure. What had happened to my life? But you know, God is good. God is gracious. And he took care of us and he, he blessed us beyond what we could have asked for or imagined. And I thank God for his grace every single day. In the year 2006, I became a co-owner and CEO of Pactimo. Now, Pactimo, we say, is a leading provider of premium cycling and triathlon apparel to international champions, to pro athletes, and to elite amateurs all around the world. But you know, you could just as accurately say that Pactimo makes stretchy pants for middle-aged men who should know so much better than that. Well, while I was on business for Pactimo several years ago, I found myself in Guangzhou, China, where we have our production facility. And I was sitting in a hired car, I was coming back from the factory, it had been a full day, and I was looking out the window of my car, and uh, I saw this. And I remember for some reason that afternoon, it occurred to me, wow, things have changed. Fifteen years ago, looking out my window, all I could think about, as I saw all these cars and I saw high-rise after high-rise after high-rise of apartments filled with thousands upon thousands of thousands of families. This is a city of over 11 million people. And I thought all I could have thought about years ago was how are we going to reach every single one of these men and women for Jesus Christ. But today, I just want to get back to my hotel room. And I realized, you know, I haven't seriously thought about the mission for a long time. Now, I had given special missions contribution every year. Eric and I sacrificed every year, and we joyfully did it. We loved our missionaries. We prayed for our missionaries. We hosted missionaries in our home all the time. But something was different. And I eventually realized I had to confront this particular question in my life. Do I believe? Do I still believe? Or do I just say I do and hope that no one asks me too deeply? I started thinking, how do I reconcile the vision, the dream that we had with the reality of this huge lost world? And so today I ask you, do you believe? 
Do you really believe? Do you believe that we are going to reach the world for Jesus Christ? You know, we're in 150 nations. That is amazing, amen? We have a membership of over 100,000 disciples, 100,000 miracles. And we need to celebrate every single soul, every story of God's grace, every story of God's intervention. Amen to that? But at the same time, what sobers me is when I realize we are but a drop in this huge bucket of the world. And so when we look at how small we are compared to the vastness of the world, how do we reconcile the reality that we see with the dream that we believe? Well, you know, that led me to start thinking about some things. And I realized we've got to break down our calling. And as I started thinking about that, I thought, does God say that he wants us to go to every nation? What do you think? A little bit more conviction, please. Does God say that he wants every man and woman to have a chance to hear the gospel of Christ? Absolutely he does. First Timothy chapter 2. Does God say that we are going to do it in one generation? It's actually not written anywhere. And when I started thinking about that, I thought, wow, God's plan might be better than our plan. God's plan might be deeper than our plan. It might be more sustainable than our plan. Maybe God's plan is going to be far more impacting than what we could have ever imagined, amen? A huge turning point for myself and for Erica was in September 2013. We had just hired our awesome youth and family ministers, Kay Sam and Bree Perkins for Denver. And uh, we had gone together to the Brooklyn uh, Youth and Family Ministry Conference in 2013. And we're sitting there listening to Dave Pachta and Justin Renton share about the power of youth and family ministry to impact not only their church, but their entire community. While we were there listening, I remember something clicked, a light bulb went on. And I turned to Erica right in the middle of the message. And I said, honey, Right now, I am as excited as I was when we made the decision to move to Tokyo, Japan. I am fired up because the message that I was beginning to understand was God has a plan that reconciles what we see with what we believe and hope for. I know I'm preaching to the choir. We all believe in the importance of youth and family ministry and family ministry, amen? We all love our children, amen? But what I want to do today is I want us to take everything that we've learned this weekend and through understanding more deeply God's convictions about it and his vision, give us the faith together to look reality squarely in the eye and with all of our heart and all of our minds say, I believe we will reach the world for Jesus Christ. Now let's start with this. God calls us to generational missions. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are be on your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The most important command, the greatest command according to Jesus Christ, obviously a reflection of the heart of God himself. And God says, love me. Have a relationship with me. This is to be on your heart. This is not a ritual. It's not a membership in a club. We're going to have an absolute personal commitment to God himself. But he says, if you do, what happens? It's natural. The very next sentence says, impress this on your children. Not only here, but in the entire chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. And actually in the context of the entire book of Deuteronomy. God says over and over and over to his people that I expect you to pass your faith on to the next generation. You see, the greatest command is not just a command, it's actually a plan. You see what I'm saying? The greatest command is the greatest plan. And it's God's generational plan. If you go back and read the Old Testament and the entire Bible through the lens of God's generational plan, it gets exciting. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to do some deep scripture reading right here because it's not just about emotionally loving our kids, it's about having deep convictions about the next generation. One of the most famous callings in the history of God's people, God calls Abraham. And he says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Great nation. Great name. Great protection. All peoples on earth blessed. Reaching the world. Isn't every part of this promise ours in Jesus Christ as well? That he will be with us. He will walk with us. He will use us to reach the world. And yet when we look at the reality of Abraham's life, what are the facts, biblically speaking? You know, Abraham did answer the call. He went to the promised land. And once he got there, what happened? There was a famine. He had to leave and he had to go to Egypt to survive. Then they come back, and he never built a walled city with a huge castle with an army of thousands of armed men. He didn't have any of these things. In fact, he lived a nomadic life, wandering back and forth through the country in tents. In fact, when he had to bury his beloved wife, Sarah, he needed to go and purchase a piece of land just so he could bury her. It wasn't until he was 100 years old They had not an army of sons, but a single son, Isaac. God gave Abraham these incredible promises. But how do we reconcile the reality of his life with the dream and the vision that God gave him? The linchpin is in Genesis 18. This is an amazing passage. In Genesis 18, verse 18... God says to his angels, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him 
so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. He will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord so that the promise would come true. God promised Abraham that you will reach the world. You'll be a blessing to all nations. But how will he do it? By turning the hearts of his family to God. Get this. God's plan put the world within Abraham's reach. 400 years later, God's family has multiplied. Hugely. But they're slaves in Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, we read just before the Passover, while the Israelites are still slaves, it says in verse 24 of Exodus 12, obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Jews were still slaves. They had not yet been set free. They had not yet been saved. But God was concerned with more than just their salvation. He was already thinking about their children and the next generation. In Exodus chapter 16, this is after the Exodus, after the crossing of the Red Sea. They are now free. It's been an incredible miracle. They've experienced salvation. But you know what? God wasn't done. He had even bigger plans. And every morning, the Israelites would get up and there would be manna on the ground. I liken it to frosted flakes. That would be tough for 40 years, but that's what they ate. And Moses says in Exodus 16, 32, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. Generations to come. Do you see that God was not finished after the great miracle of their salvation? He said, I want you to understand my people. That's just the beginning, but I have such greater plans for you to fulfill the promise I gave to Abraham. And how will it be done? Generation after generation after generation. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, the people of Israel stand on the plains of Moab, about to enter the promised land, a time of conquest. In verse 9, Moses said to the people, Only be careful and watch yourselves closely, so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen, or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children, and to their children after them.
Now, I want us to think for a second, take a step back from the Scripture. Who is Moses talking to? He's not talking to the generation that came out of Egypt. They've died. In fact, if you're like me, when you think about that generation, you often think of them as having failed, don't you? We think about how they failed God's mission because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, because of their fears, because of their anxiety, because of their compromise and their sin. But you know, as I've grown older as a Christian, I've got to tell you, after 36 years looking back, I relate a lot to that generation. There have been some amazing, incredible times in my life as a Christian. But there have also been some very dark times. Times when I was afraid. Times when I lacked faith. Times when I compromised. Times when I forgot the dream. But one thing that encourages me, that generation spent 40 years in the wilderness. It was not an easy life. And it wasn't the life that they had expected. But they were free. They were free. And they used their freedom to worship God. And every day when that cloud set up and went, they got up and they followed. And every night when that pillar of fire set place, they stopped there. They worshiped God. They obeyed God. They followed God. And they taught their children to do the same. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 4, now it's their children who stand on the brink of the promised land. Standing on the foundation of their parents' faith. And Eric and I have had an incredible story of romance in our 30, almost 32 years of marriage. But there had been some hard times, and especially when we first got married. I'm so thankful that we got married after having been converted as campus students so that we were able to base our relationship on the purity and the principles of God's Word. But perhaps not unlike many of you, we brought a lot of our dysfunctional past into the relationship. And those first couple of years could have, they were pretty stormy at times. And when we look at a marriage of our kids, sometimes we kind of stand in awe of how much further they are at the same time in their marriage. A year or so ago, Erica went to visit Manami and Ross in New Jersey, and they were going somewhere, and she was sitting in the back seat. She was telling me about this later. And at one point, Manami turns to Ross and says, Honey, when, when you said that, it, it hurt my feelings. And Ross turned to her and said, Oh, honey, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? And then Manami turns to Ross and says, Of course, I forgive you. And they kept driving. <laughs> and Erica says, she's sitting in the back. She goes, wait, wait, wait what, what just happened here? Was that a fight? Did I just see a fight? 
And you know, Eric and I just laughed so much thinking about how the kids get, are able to stand on our shoulders and go so much farther than us. And I want to tell you, <laughs> yes, it's humbling too. For all of you older Christians like myself, you know what? We may fail, and certainly we will fail. But ultimately, we are not failures if we can pass on our faith to the next generation. Amen? Not just our kids, but all our kids. Let's go to Psalm 78. Time of King David. Time of great glory among God's people. And in Psalm 78, the psalmist says, My people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done. He decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation will know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. All I want to ask you is this. How many generations in this passage? I don't know. I couldn't figure it out. But there's a lot. A time of great glory, a time of incredible expansion among God's people. And what is God still emphasizing? He's saying, listen, from your ancestors to their descendants, to you, to your children, to the children yet unborn, and even to their children, never stop passing on your faith. Amen? Well, let's go to Malachi chapter 4. There's so many more passages. Let's just go right to the last verse of the Old Testament. I'm not exaggerating. We're going to read the last verse of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4. In verse 4 it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Verse 6. He will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. The stakes are high. The stakes are high and God says, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take families coming together, parents connecting with children in a way that passes on their faith. Now, I know that some people will claim that this is just an allegory about following the faith of our forefathers like, you know, the great prophets. But Malachi chapter 2 is very literal. He's saying God does not approve of divorce. Can I just say that again? God does not approve of divorce. And you know, at that time, the Hebrew men were divorcing their wives to marry non-believing foreign women. And he's saying, I don't approve of that. And in the same sense, he's saying here, this is what I want. I want families to come together to be connected in heart. You know, that's just an Old Testament scripture. Funny enough, at the very beginning of the Gospels in Luke 1.17, this is the very verse that's quoted. In fact, if we look at the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus Christ, like Robert was talking about, oh, and by the way, Jesus was a single man. And that single man, Jesus Christ, he had a deep love for the next generation. 
When the crowds gathered around Jesus, it wasn't just the Hebrew men. It was the women and it was the children. In fact, we see that Jesus lifted up, he honored, he advocated for children in front of adults all the time. He did not want us to forget the children. When Jesus went into the temple, who was it that was singing so loud that the Pharisees got upset? Was it not the children? You see, people came to Jesus. They learned from Jesus. They followed Jesus. They prayed Jesus in families. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us.